I want to welcome up uh, Michael Beard. Thank you. Thank you. Am I on? You are on. All but right. I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for you, All and right. then I'm gonna cut you loose. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for Michael, and thank you for his willingness to share with us this morning. God, I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit and that you would fill him with wisdom and clarity to be able to um, speak the truth that you have for him this morning, uh, that he would uh, listen intently to your spirit to, uh, to, to speak to us what we need to hear. And would you open the eyes of our hearts to be able to receive uh, what it is you would have us receive from Michael this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joey. Absolutely. Good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, let me explain this. Uh, you usually don't see a podium up here on Sunday mornings because most people who stand up here are able to stand up here. I'm not. I, I am a little bit of a disadvantage. I'm two feet shorter than most other people who stand up here. Uh, so um, you, you've noticed how these music stands just tend to collapse over the service and they're always pulling them up. If I tried that, I would be on the floor seven times before we got through very far. So I need this, and I appreciate um, ABI loaning it this morning. This is a very familiar place, and so I, I really appreciate that. Well, uh, today we are in John chapter 2. It's been really great to um, walk with uh, Jesus in the uh, first chapter of the Gospel of John and how that was broken out to us. And uh, it, it's just been really awesome to have this fresh look at um, Jesus through that Gospel. And uh, it's, it's really interesting that um, Aaron got three weeks to go through one chapter and I get 40 minutes. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, John chapter 2, it divides uh, very nicely into three different sections, and so we are going to um, take a look at those, and, and um, I want to emphasize just one thing out of each of those three sections. We've got the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns the water into wine, and then we've got the cleansing of the temple, which is awesome. And then John closes with a, um, an interesting little observation about how people are responding to him. And uh, wow, this, John's gospel is just so rich. Um, so let's, let's dive into it. Let's start with the wedding at Cana. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing. I'm just going to get to the part that I want to highlight. All right, so John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We read this, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now I want to stop right there. Wow, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Not only are they out of wine, it looks like somebody didn't have enough coffee. I mean, that's, 
I hope that when you read that, that it makes you a little uncomfortable because how can Jesus speak to his mother that way? Um, well, I, I hope if you have that impression that um, Jesus is being pretty harsh, I hope that we can uh, get past that and get over that um, by the time that we're done here today. There are three parts to what he says in his response. Uh, two of them are not that difficult to handle. It's that middle part that is, is really kind of uh, strange to us. So let's, let's uh, handle those first two. Uh, first of all, he calls her woman. Um, it doesn't take too much research you know, to, to figure out and to see that that was a title of respect and honor. It was not said in any kind of derogatory way at all. Uh, Jesus is giving her a title of respect. He's using one that was very common in the day. Um, I don't recommend that you use that as a model <laughs> in our culture. Woman, you know, that, uh, those are fighting words. Uh, but it wasn't in Jesus' time. As a matter of fact, you know, for centuries before he ever used this, it, it was used in all kinds of contexts to give uh, honor and respect and even to convey some affection to the people that um, were being addressed this way. Um, Mark Antony, the, the Roman soldier, um, addressed the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, as woman. You know, you don't walk into the court of Egypt and say, hey, woman, what's up? You know, that doesn't go over too well. So this, this was very respectful, and it's, it's not really an, a problem. So I, I hope that you don't see it as a problem as Jesus addressing his mother that way. Um, the last thing he says in his little response to her is, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, in the Gospel of John, he's usually referring to his coming death. But if you look just a couple of lines ahead of this, at the end of chapter 1, you've got that encounter with Nathaniel in Jesus and Nathaniel is responding to Jesus when um, he meets him. And he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus responds to that. And in there, he calls himself uh, not the son of God, which he is, and the, or the king of Israel, which he is. He says, you are going to see things happening with the son of man. And those are the aspects of uh, who he is that we see throughout the gospel of John. John is proving to us that he's the son of God, that Jesus is the king of Israel, but his ministry at this point is to be the son of man, to live among us, a God incarnate, and to live in such a way as to show us the glory and um, the, the redemption that is in his father. And so Jesus has already started to turn the expectation of the people to uh, him as the son of man. So when he tells Mary, my hour is not yet come, he's referring to his death, but he is also addressing that expectation of uh, him as the king. And uh, he's telling his mother here, uh, it's, not, it's not time yet. Um, I am going to address this need, but in a way that is fitting with my current mission and ministry here. Uh, now we get to that really interesting part. What, have, what does that have to do with us? 
Um, the reason this is so difficult, you know, it sounds like a rebuke to her. Uh, it sounds like uh, he's addressing her as if she had made some presumptions about what he is to do in this situation. And that's, that's not quite the case. Uh, a lot of people, if you read about this, they try to explain um, things that are true. And the truth, if you see this as a rebuke to Mary, the truth is that nobody has a um, prior claim to a relationship with the Lord. We all have to come to him on the basis of faith. Uh, there, there's just no other way around it. Um, and so it's, if this is a rebuke, you do need to see it that way. But what I want to show you through a, a couple of examples is um, that this expression what have I to do with you, or what does this have to do with us? This was an expression that was centuries old in the culture of the people. And it just sounds rough to us. It's really hard. You know, every language and every people group have these kinds of expressions. I mean, we have things like uh, kick the bucket. Okay, to try to explain that to somebody who doesn't speak English. I mean, that's really hard. Um, if you were having a cup of coffee in Paris and explaining all of your plans for a, a whirlwind tour through all of Europe in a week uh, to a new French acquaintance, this French man might look at you and say, wow, you have long teeth. What? What do you, you know, or they might say, you have teeth that scrape the floor. Oh, that's real flattering. Thank you. What that expression in, in France means is that you are ambitious. You are very ambitious. You're extremely ambitious. But it's really hard for us to get that from you have long teeth. That, that just doesn't fit too well. Uh, the Cheyenne Nation here in, in uh, the U.S. have a really fun expression when it's foggy outside. They say, the turtle is shrouded. That's a, that's a good one. So next time you see the fog out on the bay, just say, uh, the turtle is shrouded. Everybody will know exactly what you're talking about, right? <laughs> okay. Um, I mentioned that this, this uh, question that Jesus um, puts to his mother is one of those kinds of expressions. And um, it can be rendered a couple different ways. Uh, what does this have to do with us? Or what do I have to do with you? Uh, very simply put, it's what to me and to you. And there are a couple of passages of Scripture that we're not going to look at, but if you could put them up there, we've got Judges 11, verse 12, 2 Kings 3:13, Matthew 8:29. In all of those passages, we have this same expression. So write those down. You can look at those later. And what I want to do is look at a couple of them so that we get the idea of when do you use this expression that Jesus is using with his mother? When is it appropriate to make that kind of a statement? Um, let me set the context for you. The first example that we see in the life of King David. Uh, it's when Absalom comes to Jerusalem and kicks his father out. And David is leaving in a very humble way. He is, um, um, he's got his people around him, surrounded by his guards and his soldiers. And as he's leaving Jerusalem, um, uh, at first he's met with people who bless him. But then this guy comes out 
who is a relative of the family of Saul. And he starts yelling at David and saying, this is what you deserve, David. You, you know, he calls him all kinds of names and he's throwing rocks at King David and everything. And then we read in 2 Samuel 16, verses 9 and 10, Abishai, he's David's general. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? This is the kind of situation that is typical for the use of that expression. And we see it's a, it's a pretty significant time. Uh, for David, it's a time of crisis. And it's a very personal expression. He's saying, I, I, I get what you're, where you're coming from, but listen, this, this is a horrible time for me. My son is taking over the throne. I, I need to spend some time thinking through this. This is a significant moment, and it is very personal to me. That's one example of where this expression can be found. The other one that we're going to look at uh, is in the life of Elijah. As Elijah travels around Israel, um, proclaiming the word of the Lord and doing all kinds of really cool stuff like stopping the rain for years, uh, you know, he, he stays with this widow woman who has a son. And God provides miraculously for the widow in, in this situation. And uh, one day, though, Elijah's there, and her son gets sick to the point of death. There's no breath left in his body. And she carries her son down to Elijah. And in 1 Kings 17, verse 18, she uses this expression, too. She said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O son of, or uh, man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. So she's, she's just torn up. She, she could hardly handle this. And so she uses this expression to Elijah to uh, convey to him that this moment of crisis is just killing her. And, you know, she wonders, is this something that I've done? What's going on here? So Elijah takes the boy prays for him, God restores him, and Elijah brings the boy back to his mother. And she says, um, in the end there, 1 Kings 17, 24, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So she didn't completely uh, dismiss, dismiss Elijah. She was expressing um, this, this deep grief at a moment of, of extreme need. That's the expression that Jesus uses with his mother when she says they have no wine. So you might be wondering, well, that doesn't seem to be so bad, you know. Why would he use that expression when she comes to him and, and just points out the fact that uh, they're, they're running out of wine, 
I mean, that doesn't seem like life or death. It would be very embarrassing for them. But um, <clears throat> there wasn't too much that could come out of that. What Jesus is doing is telling her that this is going to be a very significant moment. You use the expression in very significant moments, often at times of crisis and always used with deep personal interests in the outcome. And that's what Jesus is telling her. Is, uh, he, he had already been away from home for a while, but in and out. Uh, he had gone and, and he had been baptized by John. He would spent 40 days in the wilderness. But here he is with his mother, and we read a little bit later, his brothers are there as well. And she just makes this observation that they are out of wine. Uh, John tells us specifically that this is his first miracle. So Mary doesn't have a prior history of expectation that Jesus is going to do something wild and crazy, like turn water into wine. You know, there, there's no history of them growing up in the family and, you know, James breaks his arm and Mary says, uh, Jesus, we need you. And he goes over and lays his hands on James and there we go, it's all fixed. We don't have any of that. Um, <clears throat> but in this account of the wedding, we don't see Joseph mentioned anywhere. And most people agree that Joseph has probably been dead for a while. G Jesus is about 30 years old here. And... As the oldest son, Mary would have gotten to the point of just depending on him. Um, he is the, um, the head of the house in the absence of his father. And we know he is full of wisdom and uh, he's extremely dependable. So she probably had a role in the wedding of some kind of responsibility. She is telling the servants what to do. They are probably the ones who notified her that they're running out of wine, and she, she doesn't know what to do. So she just comes to Jesus and lays the facts out there, uh, expecting him to be his usual wise, insightful, uh, guidance-giving eldest son. But what he does is he turns that moment into a moment of deep significance. And he tells her, this is going to be a very personal moment. Things are going to change. I'm going to do something about this. But things are going to change between us from now on. This is his leaving home moment. This is when he tells his mother that even though his hour has not yet come, things are going to change. And from that point on, they do. He's not excluding her. He's not uh, turning against her in any way. But what he is doing is no longer having that um, exclusive mother-son relationship. He is opening up the opportunity for all to enter into that kind of relationship with him. And that's what we see when we read that his mother and brothers come to him later trying to get in to see him. And he's told, your mother and your brothers are outside wanting to see you. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? They are those who hear the word of God and do it. 
That's not an exclusionary statement. That's an inclusionary one, opening up the doors for all of us to enter into that relationship. And so here in the wedding of Canaan, Jesus is telling his mother in a very private moment of deep personal significance, things are going to change. In verse 12, we see another indication that Jesus is uh, very tenderly and very personally uh, staying involved with his family. We read that after this, after the wedding and after the miracle of turning the water into wine, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. If Jesus was closing the door on his mother and saying, uh, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, uh, he, he would not have done this. What we see here is Jesus continuing to care for his family. But you notice the change of order in the names. At the beginning of this little account, we have Mary mentioned first. And then Jesus and his disciples. And in scripture, when you get a list like that and the order changes, it's usually pretty significant. And what we see happening here is that Mary gave over the whole situation to Jesus when, he to when she told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And we see the same thing here. The wedding is over. He leaves. He is the one in the lead now. And he takes his mother and his brothers and the disciples down to Capernaum. At this point, his brothers are not believers. They, we know that it's not until after his resurrection that his brothers started to believe on him. And, and they, be, they became uh, significant in the leadership of the early church. But all the way up until his death and resurrection, they didn't know what to make of him. They didn't know what, what this was all about. They were really concerned. And that should be a note of hope to all of us. We see somebody like Mary interacting with Jesus, and she's the one who is always taking all of these things into her heart and pondering them. And she's always ready to respond to the Lord with, yes, do unto me as you will. That's always been her response. But at the same time, in the same context, we've got Jesus and his brothers. And they, they just don't know what to make of him. But Jesus is there with them, leading them down to where they're staying. And, uh, and it's just an awesome picture of Jesus and his compassion and his availability. No matter where you are, in your walk, no matter what questions you have. The disciples are just starting to learn who he is. His brothers have no clue. And his mother, his mother is taking it all in. And Jesus is there in each one of those situations. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we see as Jesus begins his ministry, he transformed a normal need into a significant moment. And he emphasized the point of personal investment and cost. What to me and to you? This is going to have a big impact on us, Mom. Very personal investment in cost. 
And then in a huge change of point, <laughs> point of view, all of a sudden we find ourselves in the temple at Passover and we pick it up in John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money um, changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Wow. Go Jesus. <laughs> Goes into the temple and just cleans it out. And um, this, this uh, verse that the disciples remember, the zeal for the Lord uh, for your house is consuming, that's from Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. And we see in here another hint about that expectation of who the Messiah was going to be. And so they're remembering this as Jesus is cleansing the temple. Um, and it's just, just a, an awesome picture, an awesome sight. Um, but as I read this, I was wondering, why? I mean, to what end? Did he cleanse the temple because it was just too dirty? Too noisy? Were these the wrong things to have in the temple? Uh, what's going on here? Why drive all of these things out? Because what were the people supposed to bring into the temple? Oxen, sheep, doves, money. Everything that was there that he drove out were things that the people were supposed to be bringing in. So, what's the deal? Well, let's look at the requirements for for sacrifices uh, to be in the temple. We have in Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 4, um, one of the descriptions, there are several descriptions about the kind of sacrifice to bring. So look at this. It says, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So what we see here in these couple of uh, passages is that the animals for the sacrifice were supposed to come from the herd. It was supposed to be their own animal because this animal would be the one that the person would lay his ha hands on and confess his sins and that animal would die in his place. Um, another requirement is that some of the sacrifices were told to be one year old. In Leviticus 9.3, we read, Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, 
both one year old without defect for a burnt offering. Can you imagine how you're supposed to handle this? When it comes time to bring your sacrifice to the Lord, you had to examine it. You had to personally get down there, inspect the animal, and make sure it was acceptable. And for some of these sacrifices, they had to spend an entire year with that animal. When it was lambing season or what do you call it, oxing season or <laughs> calving season for ox and things like that, you, you probably had several animals that right at that moment were acceptable offerings. But for the ones that were going to be a year old, you had to spend an entire year uh, watching over them, caring for them, feeding them, protecting them. You were personally invested in the care of these animals. And when it came time to sacrifice the animal, you had to get down there with them, look at their ears and their eyes and their nose. Some of these animals had been through a lot in a year. They've broken limbs. They've been attacked by wild animals. This one doesn't, this one has a blemish. I can't take that. This, you know, Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of this kind of care in John chapter 10 where he says that he's the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. There's, there's some kind of a relationship in there of spending time with these animals and then when it came time to select them, you know your sheep, you know the oxen, you know which one you're going to take to the temple. The problem here um, had to do with the fact that none of that was involved. Here's the requirements for the sacrifice. From the flock or the herd, this had to be your animal, yours. It had to be without blemish, meaning you had to examine it, watch over it, care for it. And if it was a yearling, you had invested a whole year of caring for that animal. You see, there's a huge difference between bringing an acceptable sacrifice into the temple and just going there and buying one. We have an expression that covers this scenario very well. You've heard it said, it's not personal, it's just business, right? That's exactly what the problem was. It wasn't personal. It was just business. And Jesus said, get out. Don't turn my father's house into a place <clears throat> of business. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he was clearing the way for personal access to the father so that we could go into the temple and have the opportunity to worship in spirit and truth. It had to be personal. Jesus cleared the way for us to be able to do that. Cleansing the temple was a matter of Jesus removing the barriers to worship and providing access to the Father. That's what the cleansing was all about. Worship is to be personal, not just business. 
Now, of course, he was <clears throat> challenged in this. Uh, rightly so. The, the, the temple authorities had no idea who he was at this point. There were probably two times that Jesus cleansed the temple, and this was the first one. And so they came up to him, of course, and challenged him and asked for a sign. And uh, he said, okay, I'll give you one, uh, my resurrection. <laughs> of course, the, he didn't put it in those words, and they didn't understand at all. Uh, but don't come down too hard on them yet. It was their role to make sure that things were being done. And it's really interesting that they didn't challenge what he did. They challenged his authority to do it. They knew what was going on. They knew that this was not supposed to be a place of business. This was a place of personal worship. And Jesus put that right. And he still does today. <clears throat> the very last section. John chapter 2, verse 23 John gives us a little summary of things that are going on um, in addition to these different views that we have had of Jesus. We have seen him at the wedding in Cana. And he made that moment a significant, very deeply personal moment between himself and his mother. And then we see his relationship with his father in the cleansing of the temple. And the whole point there was again, focused on deeply personal relationship. And then we read in John 2, 23 to 25, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Wow. Once again, we're kind of thinking, that's, that's a little harsh. You see, if you come to John chapter 2 and you read the account of the wedding in Canaan, and you think that Jesus is rebuking his mother for daring to suggest that he do something. If you see him cleansing the temple as just simply an outburst of righteous indignation, you come to this last part and you're left thinking, man, if I'm going to approach the Lord, I better have my act together. I'm going to be rebuked. I'm, I'm going to be driven away. Um, and, and Jesus is going to look at me and say, no thanks. But if you look at it from the other perspective, if you look at it from the perspective that Jesus is ensuring a personal connection all along the way, look at the people he's uh, surrounded by. We've already mentioned how Mary was always ready to respond to the Lord and always had a yes for whatever God was asking her to do. And we see his brothers who had 
no clue what was going on, but they were sincere. We see that they really cared for him because that, you know, that's why they approached him and tried to get to him when he was being all crowded around. They wanted to, to take care of him. They, they weren't sure what was going on. They didn't believe he was the Christ, the Son of God, but, but they cared about him. And so you've got Mary, you've got Jesus' brothers who are way out there just trying to figure it out, uh, sincerely trying to grasp a hold of what is the truth, what is going on. And his disciples, <clears throat> they had already started to follow him, but then when they saw that he had the power of the creator turning water into wine, and they believed, they saw his glory, and they believed, and, and they're starting out this uh, uh, three-year walk with Jesus, building their faith and learning from him. Um, it's just a beautiful picture. And then you've got people who are challenging his authority. Who, who are you to do this? There are a lot of us who, you know, myself included, we get into that position, don't we? The Lord is asking me to get rid of something. Who do you think you are? The resurrection should answer that question. He is Lord. He is the living Lord. And then you've got this group of people here at the last part of John 2. And it seems like that would be really great. I mean, the, these people are believing in him. They are, they're ecstatic. We read a couple of other instances in John and in the other gospels that uh, they were having a blast. Jesus was feeding them. He was healing them. He was doing all kinds of incredible things, showing his glory, and they were responding. There's crowds and crowds of people. But Jesus didn't commit himself to all of them. This is a reflection of what we saw in John 1, starting in verse 10, where John tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. Oh, they were all about what he could give them. They were all about the bread and the healing and just all of this incredible stuff, watching him take down the Pharisees when they tried to trick him, and that was awesome. But did they receive him? They were, they were all about the signs. You know what we like to do with signs? We like to collect them. How many of you have been in um, the sign forest on the Alcan. That place is awesome. I mean, I, I don't have anything against the Alcan. Uh, Wanda and I have a sign hanging up there. My mother and stepfather from uh, Tucson have a sign hanging up. Uh, Pam, you and Scott put one up, what, about 15 years ago? I mean, this place is really cool. It's awesome. I don't have anything against the sign forest, but I think it's a really good Example of what we like to do with signs. We like to collect them. We like to look at them. This is good stuff. This is so cool. There's a whole science <clears throat> involved in the communication sciences and language and all that kind of stuff that makes its entire theoretical framework 
around sign and what is signified by it. There's a difference between the signifier and the signified. There's the sign and there's the substance behind it. We love the signs, but what are signs for? What are they, what are they for? They give us instruction and direction. That's what they're intended for. So are we doing this? Are we just building a nice sign, sign forest in our, in our lives and in our walk with the Lord? Or are we following the signs? That's what John is talking about in this last section of John chapter 2. Jesus is loving and giving and patient. He is available. He is present. He makes himself known, but he's not gullible. He's awesome, and he does respond. But there were so many people who were just here for the show this passage is a bit of a warning to us, but I think it also is a huge encouragement to us because what is Jesus wanting to do? Commit himself to those who respond to him. That's what he's waiting to do. That's what he's all about. What is the heart of the matter the heart of the matter, can I have the worship team come up as we get ready to close here? <clears throat> the heart of the matter is that Jesus is committed to genuine relationship. That's what he's here for. That's what he is doing. He makes himself available. He can make any moment significant even those seeming just normal, casual, domestic little things that are going on, cooking dinner or having a wedding reception, those can become extremely significant moments in our lives. Take Mary's part and say, do what he asks you to do. He can make any moment significant. He himself is our access to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And anything in the way of that access, he has destroyed, taken it out of the picture. He has opened the way. Not only do we have the cleansing of the temple in John 2, but at the moment of his death, you remember what happened? the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom completely opening the way to the Father that's what Jesus is about so our, our task then is to respond to his work in our lives we are surrounded by all kinds of signs of God's goodness and his grace and his power and his majesty when we walk out here if the turtle is not shrouded we see a magnificent display of the glory of God. 
Don't just be collecting those signs. Respond. And we make four different ways for you to respond to the Lord. We are going to be singing in worship to who Jesus and the Father is. Look deep in your heart and make that a very significant personal connection with the Lord as we sing in worship of him. The Lord's table is represented around the room. Make that a personal point of connection. If you take of the Lord's Supper, remember his body and his blood. It's him. It's himself committing himself to you. There's no better picture of that than partaking in what he has provided for us. Um, Offerings. Jesus poured out the money of the money changers. He didn't want that. What he wants is your heart. And so give as unto the Lord with a thankful heart. Make that a part of genuine worship in spirit and truth. And then if you're not sure, like Jesus' brothers, I just have questions. I need to talk to somebody. There will be people over here by the prayer area to help you, to talk with you, and to pray for you and with you. The point, the heart of the matter, matter, Jesus is personal. Make it personal. Respond to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your provision. Lord, bless this time. Help us to respond properly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Michael. You guys can go ahead and stand with me in worship. Thank you. Lord, I come and I confess bowing.